Hi everybody, welcome. I'm Connor Hogan, Senior Manager of the Cyber Risk and Advisory Team here in BSI. And I'm absolutely delighted to be here today with Trevor Hughes, CEO of the IAPP. Trevor, thank you so much for coming into us today. Glad to be here, Connor. And happy Data Protection Day. Indeed, happy Data Protection Day. Data Protection Day is that annual celebration of uh, maybe a, a, a profession and a subject that some people find very boring or find maybe not as interesting as some others, but I for one really enjoy it. Data Protection Day represents a celebration of all things privacy. Data protection um, being a, a foundational principle and fundamental right here in Europe as well as around the world. Um, but it's evolved significantly since uh, the very first Data Protection Day back in 1981. Trevor, what sort of moves have you guys seen in the IAPP over the last number of years? Sure. So happy Data Protection Day. Indeed, it is a moment that we can reflect on the idea of data protection and privacy in society and in our lives. And certainly it's a day for privacy professionals around the world to um, try to get their spouses and partners to treat them just a little bit nicer that day. Um, we've seen lots of changes around the world uh, with regards to data protection and privacy. In fact, we've seen massive changes. I think we just need to open the newspaper any day of the week to see the types of changes that we are experiencing. Technological innovation is disrupting our understanding of data protection and privacy every single day. Societies, regulators are struggling with how to respond to those technological innovations. And as a result, organizations, both in the private sector and the public sector, are investing in the development of professionals and programs and technologies to help them better assess and understand and manage those risks so that we can have a more trustworthy, more stable and predictable digital economy. That's a really exciting thing to be in. And in the 20, 25 years that I've been working in this field, uh, there never has been a better moment than today. Uh, there is more money, more interest, more focus flowing into our field, and the issues are simply fascinating. So the one thing I'll challenge, Connor, is on Data Protection Day, there's absolutely not a bit of me that finds any of this boring. And when people really understand what's at stake with privacy and data protection, they realize that these are some of the most fundamental human issues that we face in today's world. With the advent of cloud technologies or big data, artificial intelligence, IoT, location tracking, and all the technology that people actually carry around every day with them in their pockets, in their vehicles, how, how does the world today differ from the world back then, 20 years ago when the IAPP was founded? Hmm. Because how can data protection actually keep up with these developments, either as a profession or indeed as a practice? Uh, so again, it's a fantastic question. And I like to say that everything is different, but everything is the same as it ever has been. And let me explain what I mean by those. And I'll describe why everything is the same as it ever has been. First of all, Technology has always disrupted privacy. At the IEPP, we look back historically, in fact, we're gonna spend some time doing this this year, to other disruptive technologies and how they changed privacy. In 1890, really the founding of the legal understanding of privacy was created when two academics, two lawyers, 
in the Boston area in the United States. Louis Brandeis and Samuel Warren wrote a law review article called The Right to Privacy. And they were reacting to two developments in society. One was the rise of mass media, but the other was an emerging technology that disrupted how they understood privacy on the streets. And it was flexible film inside cameras. Because before 1890, in order to take a picture, you needed a tripod and a cape, Photography was very obvious and very transparent, but with the development of flexible film, all of a sudden the Kodak Brownie camera was about the size of half a loaf of bread and it could be hidden underneath a jacket and a photo could be taken surreptitiously. So Warren and Brandeis said in 1890, when technology changes the context of privacy, so too must the law change to adapt. In 1920, the telephone existed. And all of a sudden, there was a privacy issue associated with governmental access to phones, wiretapping, but also many people were on party lines. You'll remember them when all of your neighbors could pick up the phone. And if you were talking on the phone, they could hear the conversation as well. We saw new laws emerge then as well. Fast forward to the 1950s and 60s with the rise of mainframe computing, and we saw the earliest versions of information privacy law emerge around the world, certainly in Germany, but also in the United States with the Privacy Act applying to federal governments. The process that we are seeing today is one of technological innovation and legislative policy and social normative response. That is a, a pattern that has existed for all of human history. What's different today is that the pace of change has accelerated. So the information economy, the digital economy has exploded. And the list that you started with at the beginning, Internet of Things, big data, ad, facial recognition, autonomous vehicles, there are so many disruptive technologies that are popping up around us, exploding around us, that our mechanisms for responding to those are simply not capable to respond in time. And what that means for organizations is that the risk associated with adopting those technologies has gotten much greater. We simply do not have rules of the road to guide our practices all the time. And what that means is that organizations need to invest in better risk management, and I would say better professionalization. People who know what to do and how to do it and when to do it based on a very complex assessment of the various risks that are out there in the marketplace. Um, so everything is the same as it ever has been, but everything is different as well. So the process looks the same, the pace is drastically different. And I think that creates real challenges for us around the world. And if privacy and data protection law constantly has to retrofit then to innovation and retrofit to the these advances in technology. Do you think that in practice people will ever fundamentally expect a right to privacy that is concrete or that is that is not necessarily absolute because it is qualified, mm -hmm. but is is it always going to be an after the fact thought, do you think? Yeah. So again, it's a really good question. I would argue that it is the fundamental human truth of a desire for privacy that drives the evolution after technological disruption um, anyways. And so, so it's, it's a sense of a desire for privacy set aside whether we have laws or charters or constitutions that actually define privacy uh, as a right 
It is a fundamental human truth. Now, that process is always going to continue. So we will absolutely see that process continue, but it will always be a responsive process. So a technology will emerge. Sometimes it's really hard to predict the consequences of a technology as it's emerging. Sometimes it's hard to predict the uses of a technology as it's emerging. And when we don't know the use scenarios for a technology, it's very difficult to know how we should be protecting privacy. So I think there are a few considerations. There's actually many considerations that organizations can use. They can certainly apply concepts of data ethics, privacy by design. They can build products and services with trust in mind, with privacy in mind, so as to deflect and, and um, soften some of those bigger challenges that they might otherwise face. And that, I find that really interesting because on the other side then of the coin, when we talk about data protection legislation and privacy rights, then there's the enforcement activity where the regulators right. come in effectively with their big sticks to yeah. um, to find that, yes, okay, organizations, companies, technology organizations, the technology developments, et cetera, um, you know, with these new and innovative uses and unknown uses, as you, as you point out, um, that uh, they may interfere unnecessarily with certain fundamental rights, privacy, data protection. So the regulators play a very important role. And, and obviously here in Europe, there has been maybe not as much regulatory enforcement activity of the like that people expected, mm -hmm. especially when we talk about monetary fines, yep. um, et cetera. So I suppose with a view, maybe with your view, right across the globe of, of, of privacy as a profession and as an industry, what do you make of the activity in Europe and specifically um, the level of regulatory enforcement activity? Sure. So um, let me start with a response specifically about enforcement, but then move on to why I think organizations are focusing on the wrong thing if they think about enforcement. So first, about enforcement. Um, 2019 was the largest regulatory enforcement year in the history of privacy and data protection around the world. Now, there was a disproportionate effect because of a $5 billion fine from the Federal Trade Commission agreed to by Facebook. However, beyond that, it still was the largest year. There were um, uh, uh, fines that were proposed out of the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK that added up to multiple hundreds of millions of dollars of euros or millions of euros. Um, we saw major finding activity. However, the GDPR at this point is only about 20 months old. And when it was passed, just like organizations, the data protection authorities had to staff up, they had to prepare, they had to build new processes and mechanisms in order to facilitate life under the GDPR. One of those processes was their enforcement process. So not only did they have to receive in the complaints, process the complaints, investigate the complaints, um, uh, initiate action under the complaints, and then get to a final enforcement result, which many have not granted. They also had to staff up for that function. They had to build the teams and the programs. And not for nothing, we know in the marketplace that there was a real lack of data protection talent available um, over the past two or three years as every organization was trying to staff up. I fully expect that after this initial phase of investigation and procedural delays, and then finally the, the issuance of, of orders and fines, 
that we will begin to see a steady drumbeat of GDPR enforcement activity. Rest assured that enforcement will occur. The data protection authorities across Europe know that it is expected of them, and also know that they understand the incredible um, uh, indicative power of their enforcement actions. So when they bring an enforcement action, it tells the marketplace something about how to behave. And so the data protection authorities, I think, are um, taking the time necessary to bring the actions that they deem appropriate to set expectations for behavior in the marketplace. So there it is. Give the DPAs a bit of a breather, if you will. Give them a bit of slack. Um, they've had a rough road with implementing GDPR as well, and everyone is fully expecting that enforcement is come, gonna come out soon. However, if your organization is waiting for enforcement, if you're thinking that enforcement is the reason that you need to comply with GDPR, you are completely missing the story of privacy and data protection in the marketplace. It's not about the fines that might occur. That's certainly a risk that you need to ensure that you manage for inside your organization. But compliance is the starting line, not the finish line. The greatest goal of privacy and data protection in an organization is trust. And that speaks to the stickiness, the engagement, the connectivity that you have to your customer, to your constituent, to those who you're, you serve through your organization. And so privacy and data protection equal better business. And if you are not pursuing them for that reason, you are paying all of the price without all of the gain. You're doing a compliance exercise when you could be doing an engagement exercise. You could be doing a trust exercise that really builds a better business for you and your customers. So yes, we have to pay attention to enforcement. Yes, it's coming. Yes, it will be indicative of what the regulators expect, but absolutely in no way is that enough for any business in the digital economy. That's really, really interesting and really insightful because a lot of DPAs prior to the GDPR coming in lauded the fact that the 28th of May uh, or the 25th of May, should I say, 2018, um, was, uh, was the starting line, not the finish line for enforcement. And, and with budget issues, resourcing issues, as you've mentioned, and just getting to grasp with procedural issues and making sure that, I suppose, enforcements can happen, not necessarily, of a, uh, not necessarily the monetary enforcements that many sort of expected and that grabbed all the headlines, 4%, 2%, et cetera. But that said, the lack of activity that we see, or not necessarily lack of activity, but the lack of visible headlines for mm. enforcement, um, you know, the, the, the easy wins for regulators on the front pages of, of, of the newspapers, coupled with the fact that there is a general fatigue, I think, amongst, you know, Joe Public um, and, uh, and, and the individuals whose who's, who's data the GDPR, as an example of a privacy legislation, is designed to protect. Um, Will the GDPR actually achieve its aims, do you think? Will, will mm -hmm. we actually be able to look back at this implementation period or whatever you call it in the next five to 10 years and, and go, yeah, the GDPR actually did what it, what it was set out to, to do? Yeah, so, um, so incredibly tough question, Connor. Uh, thanks for that. <laughs> um, it, I, I think there are a number of responses that are compelling. And the first is, I don't know. Um, it's hard to predict how we will look back um, uh, 10 years from now. I can tell you that there are a number of schools of thought emerging. Um, 
One is that the idea of control in the digital economy is a dream. It is, it is not achievable, it is not functional. When you look at the complexity of data relationships in today's digital economy, they are simply far too complex for the average citizen or consumer to understand. And so therefore, a regulatory structure based on the idea of control probably is never going to be effective. That's absolutely one school of thought. There's a number of academics that have pursued that. There are others who have said, that control is the only basis upon which you can have legitimacy in a data protection regime, particularly where data protection is a human right, as it is in Europe. And so therefore, it's not an issue of trying to find new public policy mechanisms to protect privacy and data protection. Rather, it's reinvesting in the idea of the individual having control. Um, there are other schools of thought that say we need to move towards new and innovative ways of um, managing our data so as to protect our human interests. I don't know which one of those will control the day and which way uh, it will actually emerge. I will offer you a, a, a couple of examples. Um, one, a specific case study that I think we see playing out and another, a metaphor. The case study is uh, that of cookies. Um, so we see cookies um, being challenged consistently, not only in Europe, but around the world. Um, they are perhaps one of the most regulated technologies, um, both from regulators themselves, but also within the environment in which they operate, a web browser. Google just recently announced that in Chrome, they're going to be blocking third-party cookies in a future version. Uh, Safari and Mozilla already do that. Mozilla through the Firefox browser. Um, Safari is Apple, obviously. Um, cookies are one of the most regulated technologies that we see in the marketplace, and yet they are absolutely critically fundamental to the functioning of the web. They provide something called state management. They make everything from e-commerce to websites remembering uh, that we visited before to preferences and advertising technology work. And yet they remain a battleground. Um, we have not fully resolved which side should win or how the battlefield should be defined when it comes to cookies. We have conflicting regulation and guidance from uh, regulators around the world. It's a perfect case study of the various forces that are in, at play. Some would say, when you go to a major website, you might be encountering 40 cookies, and how can we ever exert control over 40 cookies. I don't want to read that much or understand that much about you know, me getting my football scores on a weekend. That, that's just too complicated for what otherwise should be a simple task. Um, others say we need to move to a system where organizations take responsibility, but there's not a sense of individual control. Rather, it's that organizations are accountable for how they use cookies. And it has to be within broad, protected areas of use. We'll, we'll see how those things play out. I told you I'd share a metaphor. Here's what I think citizens, consumers, human beings want around the world. They want the digital economy to work for them. When I walk into a room, I'm staying in a hotel here in Dublin. When I walk into the hotel room in Dublin, I switch on the lights and the lights go on. Now, I know that there's wiring in the wall. I know that it took a licensed electrician to put that wiring in the wall. 
I know that there are codes and standards for what's safe and appropriate for doing that wiring. I know that there was probably an inspector that walked through the building to make sure that the wiring was done before they put the plaster on the wall to seal up all the wiring. I also know that if any of those things are violated, that there can be consequences for that electrician, for the designer, for the inspector, for many along that system. And yet, I just want to trust that all that happens. I want to trust the system so that I, when I walk in that room, not only do I switch on the lights and the lights come on and it serves me, but I don't get electrocuted and I don't start a fire and nothing bad happens because of what I'm doing. I think in the digital economy, citizens, consumers, human beings want the same type of experience. They want the digital economy to work for them. They wanna know that there are systems of control, regulators, practitioners and professionals, codes of conduct and practice that protect them, but they don't necessarily want to have to dive in and understand the wiring behind the walls all the time. If I was to predict, the way that public policy is going to head in the future. I think that those systems of accountability, those systems of stewardship so that consumers can trust their experience in the online economy, I think that those are going to find the most success over time. And GDPR includes some of those. The concepts of accountability and privacy by design absolutely exist. Even things like data subject access rights, where it's not something that you have to exercise every moment, but rather, if you really want to, you can say, hey, is this building inspected? You know, can I see that this actually was built by an architect who had a license? And if you really, really wanted to know those things, you, you probably could. I think that those have the, the greatest flexibility and the greatest promise for providing a digital economy that, that we all can trust. I think that's really, really fascinating. Empowering the individual um, to trust the digital economy, I think, is a very, very powerful idea and something that the GDPR is lending itself towards achieving. Yep. Um, and right now, I think, you know, with regulatory enforcement to come um, and obviously with other emerging um, pieces of legislation around the world, the recent introduction of the CCPA in California, yep. um, we've got a, a new data protection bill in India, we've got the, the, the Brazilian GDPR as it's yep. being dubbed as well. Yep. You know, more and more um, legislators are waking up to the fact that actually the people, the citizens of today need to, to be empowered, especially for their own data and for their own protection, because at the end of the day, it is their data. And, and another challenging aspect, I think, just to pick up on your point in, in terms of, of, of challenges, is the likes of then the data transfers between all of these multiple jurisdictions. Sure. And a couple of complex issues before the courts, um, you have international data transfers from the EU to the US um, under the microscope for the last number of years, potential court decision to come from the, the, the CJEU uh, potentially in the next couple of weeks, but also um, Brexit and right. complications that that throws up in, in a European context. Um, do you think specifically on, on the UK um, uh, uh, question, do you think that adequacy for the UK is something that might be forthcoming um, or do you foresee difficulties in that path? Um, so again, the, the first answer is I don't know. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm providing just opinion perspective here, but certainly Brexit has complicated many, many things. 
um, within the UK and beyond. One of the things that it complicates greatly is uh, uh, data protection. Um, obviously, the UK was part of GDPR, is part of GDPR, um, and uh, post-Brexit, uh, we'll need to replace that with something else. Um, there have been strong indications from Liz Denham, the Information Commissioner in the UK, and the UK Parliament and leadership that they will pass a mirror bill quickly in order to support data protection in the UK. And so the question then becomes, well, um, under GDPR, you cannot transfer data out of the European Union to a third party country unless that country has been determined to be adequate or you otherwise have a data protection transfer mechanism in place, be it model contract provisions, BCRs or otherwise. The UK upon Brexit theoretically will not have any of those mechanisms ready to go. Um, it has not been deemed adequate yet. Um, companies have not yet been able to build model contracts or other things, although many can. Theoretically, BCRs might be applicable, but very, very few organizations have those. And so data transfers out of Europe to the UK are going to be challenging. The European Commission and leadership in the UK have both indicated strongly that they hope for adequacy to occur. However, once the UK is outside of the European Union, the assessment of uh, the data protection standards within the UK actually looks at the entire data protection regime, not just the GDPR-like provisions. And one of the things that's currently um, uh, challenging US uh, receipt of data transfers from Europe is the existence of uh, national security surveillance in the United States. Well, the US, the UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia all participate in the Five Eyes program. They share data uh, with each other with regards to national security issues. And so I think there's a very real question as to whether surveillance standards, national security surveillance standards in the UK will pass muster under a EU analysis. When the UK was part of the EU, those practices would be exempted now that they're outside or as they are outside post-Brexit, um, those may come into consideration. At the end of the day, it may be a political assessment which determines this. And frankly, there is so much data traffic that goes between the US and Europe, the UK and Europe, that it is hard to imagine. It's impossible to wrap your head around the idea of the pipelines being shut uh, for data transfers between the UK and Europe or the US and Europe. However, in front of the courts right now, um, uh, the, the CGEU, uh, CJEU, and um, as well as any assessment of adequacy under Brexit, I think there are some very real risks that we're going to have some, uh, yeah, some 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 tough kilometers ahead uh, as we uh, as we make this road forward. It's definitely a complicated area, not just Brexit or or, or data protection, but data transfers and and everything else that that goes with it. And it's something that I think people in the industry, um, in the industry of, of privacy, the privacy professionals can struggle with, which is actually just keeping on top of all of the all of the developments. Yes, GDPR came into force and you could read GDPR and, and upskill in it. CCPA recently came into force as well, and organizations are looking at that and, and tasking their teams to uh, to build uh, projects that remediate um, any any compliance issues. Absolutely fine. Yeah. But, 
with the advent of all of this new sort of evolving um, aspects of data protection and privacy globally, not just focusing on Europe and, and North America, but the very real impact that it has on, on commerce as well. How, how do you um, advise uh, people in the privacy profession to actually keep up to date with all of the, the new developments and regulations and, and the seemingly endless um, swathe of data breaches and, and opinion and, and I suppose, et cetera? How, how can people keep up with it? Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple of answers. Um, first of all, you have to. Um, there, there's, no, there's no choice to participate in the global digital economy. You have to participate in a complex digital global economy. And so therefore, you need to understand what's happening all around the world. You need to understand how national laws apply to your global business. And you need to be able to differentiate your practices so as to address national level laws. Not for one second do I underestimate how difficult a task that is, but let's make no mistake, it's a task. And it's a task that you must endeavor to complete because otherwise you are going to suffer significant risks wherever you might be um, uh, non-compliant with existing standards. So let's just start with the premise that you don't have much of a choice. If you wanna be a global multinational, you wanna play in the digital economy, um, uh, you, you need to pay attention to all of these standards. Now, what do you do? How do you do that job? Uh, first things, you hire a privacy professional, you hire experts, you put people in place who are in the right places to make good decisions with good judgment. You inform them, you train them, you give them the resources and tools necessary. Certainly the IEPP is a tremendous resource for that. We publish thousands of words every single day to try to keep our members up to date. We have layers and layers and layers of mechanisms and tools and resources to help you understand what's happening around the world. But there are many law firms, consultancies, and other services that help organizations understand these various obligations. I think engaging many of those and building a robust privacy program that you manage well, that you run over time, that you build processes so that you are bringing in new standards and adopting them, um, understanding where they map against existing standards and, and, and are uh, consistent with or similar to, and understanding where they are, are different. CCPA, lots of organizations right now are trying to figure out how the heck they implement a do not sell button, which is one of the mandates of the CCPA. Um, there will be differing standards in the Indian bill. There will be differing standards in federal privacy legislation in the US. Canada is renegotiating uh, PIPEDA, their national privacy law. There will be different standards there. You must respond to all of those things, and it's a tough job, but that's why the profession is growing the way it is. And, and with the, the growth in the profession, um, the demand is obviously there um, in the marketplace for people that have skills across security, information security, compliance audit, uh, policy, law, and privacy. Um, will Will organizations become more resilient through engaging those privacy professionals and, and, and effectively buying into privacy as, as, uh, as, as an enabler? Um, or will organizations continue to struggle if they, if they don't? Uh, well, so you're asking me and I lead a professional association that, that builds those professionals. The answer is an unequivocal yes, yes. You need those professionals. You will struggle if you don't bring them on. Um, but you also need to make sure that they are staffed and resourced appropriately. So a single person can be a bit of um, 
well, just you know, dressing on top of of what otherwise is a troubled enterprise. Um, you need people across the organization. What we have found is the most common pattern is a hub and spoke model with a central privacy team, privacy liaisons and champions in product lines, regional lines around the company. Those people need training and experience and engagement. So making sure that you have the people, absolutely that's important. But it's not enough just to have the people anymore. There was a time when many privacy programs were run off of Excel spreadsheets and email. That is no longer the case. You need technology for privacy program management, privacy impact assessments, data inventories, data flow audits. Um, you need consent management mechanisms. Um, not for nothing, but managing cookies in today's world, understanding what you have consent for, which cookie, where, how, um, those are all incredibly important things as well. And then you need internal processes, business management processes, so that you are doing those things consistently over time. I think those three things, the people, the processes, the technologies, they add up to a robust and effective program. And if you're missing any one of them, you're likely going to have an insufficient response and unnecessary risk in your organization. And Trevor, um, I suppose maybe in, in closing, um, are there um, any perspectives that you have um, in terms of the future of the privacy profession and, and sure. its, its value to organizations, absolutely, but also its, its value maybe to, to, to get a bit lofty here um, to, to society in general? Sure. Uh, so it's a great question. Um, first of all, I see the path of the privacy professional as ascendant. We are growing incredibly around the world. Uh, two and a half years ago, we had 25,000 members. As we sit here today, we have 54,000 members. Um, with new laws emerging in the US and India and Canada, Brazil, enforcement emerging in Europe, we see continued growth for many, many years ahead. Um, in fact, we like to say at the IEPP, privacy isn't dead, it's hiring. Um, and I think that is very much true. But it's not just about growth and professional opportunity for privacy professionals. I actually find the privacy professionals recognize their role in helping us extract the best from the digital economy, helping us to extract the incredible power that technology brings to us while doing it in a trustworthy and safe and compliant way. Um, many technologies, whether it's automobiles or computers or any other technology, has needed to be adopted and brought into the marketplace. And we need to trust that engineers and others have built it in ways that, again, serve us and, and make our lives better. Privacy professionals do that work for the digital economy. And so it may be a struggle from day to day for a privacy pro to come in and try to figure out GDPR compliance or try to understand what the heck the CCPA says about a certain issue or to navigate with a marketing VP who desperately wants to do something that seems to be in violation of something. But I hope that they're able to step back and understand how deeply connected their work is day to day to something that is so fundamentally human and so incredibly important to the success of this digital economy in the future. Trevor, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us here today. Um, our guest today was Trevor Hughes, CEO of the IAPP. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you, Trevor. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Connor. Great chatting.